0: Have you ever found yourself surprised with some quote-unquote good fortune um, that you did not expect? And perhaps you kind of came away explaining it this way. Well, I just happened to be exactly in the right place at exactly the right time. Maybe you're a mother here and it's Monday morning and you have to go grocery shopping and you pack all your kids in the back. It's pouring as it has been over the past couple of weeks. And and you're just going to Costco and you know how Costco is and, and you're pulling up into the parking lot and somebody just right there, right in front of the store, pulls out and you're like, wow, thank you, Jesus. I got a parking spot. You pull in and you're like, I just happen to be at that right place, right, at that right time. Or maybe, as Mike announced about our building situation over the last couple of, uh, you know, months, and especially over the last few weeks, we were thinking and praying for the Lord to provide us a place, and as we were looking and and, and praying, we just happened to be, quote-unquote, at the right place at the right time, reaching out to this church, and this church answered our call, and they provided a place for us to meet, right? The right place at the right time. I remember a while back, I I was watching TV and I saw this TV commercial of a young man who was on his way to a very important job interview. He's been anticipating this interview for a while and so he's on his way there and he's trying to catch a bus but as soon as, before he enters the bus, he looks and he sees this old guy on the side of the road struggling to fix his flat tire. And so he looks at the watch, and, and he looks at the bus now, and then he kind of looks at the man, and he's trying to figure out, man, I really need that job, but he makes a decision. He commits to helping out this man. He takes off his jacket, rolls up his sleeves, goes and, and helps him out, and you know, his heart is pumping. He's wondering what to do, and then the scene in the commercial switches to where, you know, he's finally at the office. He's running up, and, and he's getting into this place, and and he walks up to the table and he greets this man and he looks up and so that the camera kind of pans over and, and they look at each other and he realizes that the man who's about to interview him is the man that he just helped repair the tire. And they both smile and so the commercial ends and everybody assumes that, yeah, the guy got hired. What else is he gonna do, you know? Put him outside, right? He gets the job and so we're thinking right place, right time, right decision. Or, or, or so we think, right? But when we read the word of God, God is revealed to us in his word as a sovereign God who moves and who positions his people in the right places at the right time to accomplish his goals and his purposes. Not by chance, friends, but by his divine design. I mean, think about this, even today, right? The earth contains about 57 million square miles of land. It's a lot of land. And the fact that you and I here are gathered in this place, in this dinky place together, this very moment at the same time is not a chance. God has brought you here for a moment. He has brought you here for a purpose. And on this special occasion, as I want us to consider a special passage. Open with me to Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight. It's a story that we all know. Those of you who have been around the church, those of you who read your Bibles uh, yearly, uh, no doubt you know this story. It's a story of Ethiopian eunuch. And oftentimes we look at the story and we see man searching for God. But I think if we look at it as a whole, we will find out that in this story, it is not a man searching for God, but God searching for a man. This is a story about how God accomplishes the Great Commission by enabling and positioning ordinary people to preach extraordinary Christ to those who are perishing, thus converting their souls from death to life. I want us to read this passage and we'll look at three points here and we'll draw application here in the time that we have remaining together. Acts chapter eight, We'll begin reading with verse 25 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Verse 26, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran out and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water and eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotis, and he passed through the, and he passed through, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. I want us to consider this passage as a whole and sort of draw out this application for us. That God is determined to save sinners through ordinary people who preach Jesus Christ. God is after people and he's determined to save sinners through ordinary people, through other sinners who are intent on giving other sinners Jesus Christ. I want us to look at three things here. We'll begin by looking at a a divine initiative, a divine initiative. Then we'll look at the divine word, a divine word and the final couple of verses, we'll look at a divine ordinance. Divine initiative in verses 26 through 29. Look with me at verse 26 in your Bibles, it says, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying. You know, one of the challenges that we have when when we do something like this, a special sermon, kind of right in the middle of a book, is we parachute down in the middle of this narrative and we're not sure who's who, right? We're not sure who's Philip. Well, he's introduced here um, to us. uh, Philip, if you were to back up a little bit in Acts. Acts chapter six, Philip is one of seven men who is chosen to serve tables. He's sort of a a servant in the church. They they had a problem and they looked among the congregation and they selected seven men. One of them was Philip. Um, He was an ordinary guy in the church. But one thing about this man and the rest of the men who were selected is they were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, according to Acts 6, 3. And that's about all we know of Philip. And then in chapter 8 of Acts, we're introduced to Philip once again. We read in chapter 8, verse 1, earlier here, that this great persecution breaks out against the church, and many Christians, including Philip, they're scattered to a city of Samaria where they do what they did in Jerusalem that is preach the word preach G- Jesus Christ and as a result of his preaching here and of his healing miraculous healing this revival breaks out throughout the villages of the Samaritans. And w- and one would would think man this is great right considering what's going on in Samaria so many people are coming to the Lord isn't that what's on our heart you know as as believers who who preach the word to our children and and those who mingle with our neighbors and 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 share Christ with them we're thinking man if we have a revival in our city that would be an awesome thing people are coming to the lord so much work needs to be done but what does the lord do here he commands philip to abandon that mission and to go to a lonely road, a desert road. Humanly speaking, it doesn't make sense. And no further explanation is given to Philip. God is just sovereignly moving Philip to reach one lost soul away from all the commotion in Samaria, one soul who is looking for answers. He's given a simple command here, which requires Great faith to obey, get up and go. And so in verse twenty one Luke tells us, and he got up and went. He got up and he obeyed. Now, a second character here enters our story, and that is this Ethiopian eunuch, Ethiopian eunuch. He comes from Africa, um, a little a little north of modern Ethiopia, if we were to look at the the map. Um, So this place here is probably in the region of Sudan, current modern region of Sudan. That's where he comes from. And, And Luke tells us that he's in charge of Queen's treasury. He's probably a wealthy man. He's in charge of the finances. Look with me at verse 27. A court official of Candace Luke says, Candace here is not a proper name, but it rather is a is a title, sort of like Herod. Okay, Herod wasn't a proper name. It was just a title for many people who were rulers and, and kings there. So Candace here is just a, a title for the queens of that region. And so because this man also works closely with the queen, he is said to be a eunuch. He's emasculated and, and he's unable to have children, probably for the protection of the court. And it's interesting that as with many other scripture passages, right? as with many other men and women in scripture, this person here, he joins this long list of people who are not given a proper name, but are only identified by their lot in life, by by some kind of title or some kind of position, or some kind of illness, or some kind of barrier that keeps them from the Lord. Right? We, we don't know the name of this guy, we only know that he's a eunuch who serves this queen. And he's referred to here as a eunuch five different times. Well, what's interesting about this man is that he appears to be a worshiper of God. He is a God-fearer. He came all the way from Africa, from Ethiopia to Jerusalem over a thousand mile journey. And it's interesting that being who he was, a eunuch, his worship was very limited. It was hindered because according to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 23, The law prohibited eunuchs and Gentile, being a Gentile, to enter the assembly of the Lord. This man is searching, but he could not be fully satisfied. He was sort of unclean according to the law. And so now we pick up this story and and having worshiped there, probably spent some time there in Jerusalem. He's now on his way back to Ethiopia with this trip, Huge long trip, many estimate that this trip would probably take him five months. Trip ahead back home. And we're not told here, but somehow, look at this, this man here, he is sitting and he's reading the prophet of Isaiah. Somehow, he got the scroll of Isaiah, and perhaps when, when he took off from Jerusalem, he couldn't wait to, you know, read it at home. He, he started reading it from the beginning, and now he is where? On Isaiah 53, And again, I want you to notice here God's sovereignty, God's initiation in moving Philip from where he was to this desert road, and then waiting for this eunuch to be in that chariot passing by and reading Isaiah. And at that very moment, Philip arrives. The spirit prods Philip, go and join the chariot, Just as the spirit, friends, is no doubt working in the heart of the eunuch, the Lord is positioning Philip here to be the instrument to bring him the gospel. And so he says in verse 29, Philip, see that chariot? Go up and join that chariot. God is after somebody. And he uses an ordinary man who is full of the spirit to bring something very precious to the soul who is searching. I want us to consider before we look at the rest of the text, just a couple of lessons here for us as a way of application. Friends, God is determined to save sinners through ordinary people. Consider the situation again. This eunuch was just in Jerusalem, I don't know, maybe three days, maybe 10 days, maybe a month ago. Not sure how far along he is. He was just in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem at that time, there were a lot of great apostles. Apostles are there. Why didn't God get one of the apostles to go and to preach the gospel to this eunuch? I mean, Peter would have been a great man to do this. He would have preached the gospel to him, would have taken him through, I don't know, uh, 12 or 13 lessons of FOF, would have presented him everything. This eunuch would have been so far ahead right? Why didn't he do it? I don't know why he didn't do it. And yet the Lord chooses to let him leave unsatisfied, go back home and involve Philip, a deacon, to preach the gospel to this man. God determined to save sinners through ordinary people, and second, I want us to see that God is determined to save sinners, and his mission is not always, quote-unquote, efficient. You know, we're always looking to just be more efficient, be more organized, to save time, to save money, to save resources. Well, think about the same point. This eunuch was in Jerusalem. No doubt there was a way for him to hear the gospel. Why wait until he's back home? And think about what God does to Philip. Philip has this fruitful ministry in in, um, Samaria. No doubt he needs to be there discipling people. And then God takes him out and he says, no, I need you to go and preach to this one man. Leave the crowds, leave this revival, and go and preach the gospel to one man who needs to hear about Jesus Christ. Friends, sometimes God's mission may seem like a waste of time. It seemed like waste of money or or other resources, but he is sovereign over all. All of the resources are his. And he positions people as he wills to accomplish what he wills. Our job is to not question, but to humbly obey as he sovereignly leads us to preach Jesus Christ to others. I mean, think about some of your own journeys. You know, here in in, in chapter eight, verse one, God causes and allows this great persecution to strike the church in order to scatter people so that people could go into other regions and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. No doubt as a result of this persecution, unbelievers were scattered to other regions where they heard about Jesus Christ. Some of you were moved, right, to another country where you were introduced to the gospel. Some of you were moved in order to introduce someone to the gospel. Friends, God is a sovereign God, and He does what He pleases, and He at times allows this movement, and we don't understand why, in order to accomplish His sovereign goals and to reach the hearts of sinners. And one other thing I want us to see here is that God is determined to save sinners from all nations. From all nations. Listen, God doesn't just have you know, one type of group or one type of language that he's after. He's not only the God of the Jews, right? Isn't that what we read in the New Testament? He's after people, he's after the whole world. Remember what um, Luke writes in, in Acts chapter 1, 8 says, but you will receive power, right, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the, what, remotest parts of the earth. Here's where you're gonna start and then I'm gonna scatter you into Samaria which is going on here in chapter eight and then you're gonna reach the world. You're gonna reach somebody who will be saved, who will take the gospel all the way to Africa which is exactly what happened there. You know, I was really blown away by this week when, when I found someone who observed um, this in the book of Acts. You know, after the flood, Noah comes out, right, of, of the ark, and, and the entire world population is divided into three, right, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, someone observed that in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter eight, we see the conversion of the son of Ham, this eunuch, son of Ham. In chapter 9, we see the conversion of Paul, who is son of Sham, the Semite. And in Acts chapter 10, we see a conversion of a son of Japheth, this Roman centurion. Friends, this is amazing. God is showing that the gospel will impact all of the nations and people groups just as Christ commanded right in, in Matthew 28 where he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. God is going to restore what the sin did in Genesis chapter 1 or 3. He is going after all people. And it's interesting when you observe even the ramification of what happened here in Acts chapter eight. If you look at church history, history tells us of the influence of um, that perhaps this man had on the future of Africa. Man who could probably trace their spiritual heritage back to this man. For instance, Tertullian, who was um, an early church father in second century, right? Cyprian in third century, Augustine, in fourth century. They were all early church fathers from Africa. So it is not a stretch to see this single conversion as having as much, if not more, or greater impact than the multitudes converted in Samaria. We would think it's a waste of time. Why leave the multitude to go for the one? God knows what he's doing, because it is his divine initiative and his divine positioning of his people to be used. As instruments to proclaim the gospel. So first, a divine initiative. God is determined to save sinners. Well, picking up in verse thirty, consider the second a divine word, a divine word. Beloved, we we all know this, but it bears repeating. God uses His word to convict the hearts of sinners and to reveal Christ to them. Isn't that what we just heard, being testified? How did they come to the knowledge? of their sin and Christ, their savior. How? It is through the word. It is through someone who was kind enough and obedient to Christ to come alongside and to point them to scripture and say, here is the answer. Here is your savior. This eunuch here in verse 30, he is reading the word. Why? Because God led him to it. We know that to be saved, everybody who gets saved, they must come to know Jesus Christ. And the only place to find Jesus Christ is in his personal revelation, the word, the word of Christ. It's hard to imagine that that this man was satisfied with what happened in Jerusalem during his trip to worship. I mean, he was barred from from entering the assembly. He is only staying in this court of Gentiles. This religion that was practiced by the majority there, it was just a show with no real substance for hungry sinners. And somehow he comes away with this scroll and he begins to read it. And he happens to read from Isaiah chapter 53, verses seven and eight. And as was common practice back then, he reads it out loud. He reads it out loud. The Lord says, Philip, go join. And as, as Philip sort of, perhaps he was running along with the chariot as they were traveling. And he hears him read these words. And as he reads, he has lots of questions. What is this all about? What am I reading? I mean, we've all read, I think, for the most part, right? 53, Isaiah 53, and we know what these words say. The main thrust of this section in Isaiah is this contrast between the innocence of Jesus Christ and the wickedness of man. Innocence of Christ and the wickedness of man. And as you read Isaiah 53, it it begs this question, what type of generation or what type of people could kill such an innocent man in such a gruesome manner? This is an innocent lamb. Why is he being slaughtered? That's the question that he's facing. Who is this man anyways? This is what's popping up in this eunuch's mind. And friend, what a perfect way, right? What a perfect opportunity to come alongside and to present the gospel. I wish more people would be asking these questions. Who is this man? That's a perfect soft pitch to any of us. We could just come alongside. I'll tell you about this, man. And just at that time, the spirit directs Peter and he comes and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And so consider this question. This is not some snobby remark, you know, to indicate how much you know. Like, do you even know what you're reading? As if I do, but this poor man doesn't. That's not That's not what Philip is doing. He is genuinely interested in in helping this man know the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, how could I unless someone explains? And then in verse 33, he says, please, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Perhaps this eunuch, he is aware of just the general interpretations that are available there among the Jews, so some some Jews, they thought that this person here in Isaiah 53 is talking about the nation of Israel, right, or Isaiah himself, and some were thinking that this is a promise of the coming Messiah, and so he's confused, he needs direction, point me in the right direction is literally what he's asking, right? And could you imagine Philip's joy as he heard the eunuch ask, please tell me, please tell me. And he invites him in. He invites him in. And, and notice notice verse 30, um, 35. This is amazing. He says, and Peter preached Jesus to him. Peter opened his mouth and out came the words of Christ. And literally it says that Peter sort of gospeled Jesus to him. He proclaimed the good news that points to Jesus to this man. Now, it's interesting that in our context, this good news is really contrasted with the bad news of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is describing the suffering servant. It talks about the suffering of the Messiah. Isaiah writes that this man, he was despised, he was rejected, he was a man of sorrow, he was constantly acquainted with grief, and he, he says things like, "Men hid his face from this man, he was cut off from the land of the living, and later on in that passage he says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, Jesus, God was pleased to crush Jesus, How's this good news an innocent man died and we see this and beginning from this scripture this was a, a launching into an exposition of scripture that points to Jesus Christ. Beginning with that scripture, he started with Isaiah and through a series of texts, he explained who Jesus is and what he did. He spoke of Christ as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets. Everything that they have spoken of and that they have anticipated is found in Jesus Christ. No, no, no doubt he's, he spoke of of how God, because of his mercy and grace, has made forgiveness possible through the death of Christ. And that Jesus welcomes everybody to him. No one is barred. Even this eunuch, who according to the law, can't really approach God. You can't approach God because Christ has opened the way to you. You can have direct access to Jesus Christ, even this eunuch. No one is excluded. Beloved, we need to learn a couple of other lessons here, that God is determined to save sinners through ordinary people who preach, who focus on Jesus Christ, not on being good, not on trying to be better, that's not good news. If you're giving someone a a how-to manual of how to do good and how to be better, that's not good news, why? Because deep down, we've all tried that. And we know that it is binding. None of us can do good and none of us can be better. We can appear to be good and do better. But deep down, when you're alone, you understand that you cannot. We need to preach Jesus Christ who is alone good and who alone does good. The power of conversion does not lie here in this preacher, in Philip. It lies in who he preached and who he offered to the sinner. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I left everything, why? Because I knew as long as I preached Christ and as long as I preached his sufficiency for wretched sinners, I will be good and God is gonna use that for the conversion of sinners. Remember Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We need to teach Christ. We need to preach Christ and his sufficiency alone. In fact, the entire scripture, friends, testifies about jesus christ if we approach this word as a how-to manual then we will fail miserably because it was never intended to be a how-to manual it was intended to point to jesus christ and reveal him alone because john chapter 5 verse 39 jesus says you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life but these testify about me so if you read this thing from cover to cover and you fail to understand that you are a great sinner, but there is a great savior and his name is Jesus, you have completely missed the point of scripture. And this is precisely why we here preach Jesus Christ and our sufficiency in him. Peter or um, Philip preached Jesus to him. God's divine word centered on Jesus is powerful, to save sinners, amen? Amen, that is why we study the word. Friends, that is why we study the word. To bask in the glories of the gospel, to know Jesus Christ more, and then to make him known. How? We just follow what Philip did. We ask the people we hang out with questions. Do you understand what you're reading? Right, isn't that what we do at life groups when we meet together? Do you understand this passage? How do we apply this passage? Do you understand what you're reading in your personal time? And then like Philip, right, we, we wait for this invitation to engage further and to follow where the Spirit is already working in the hearts of men. Ask, be interested, and when you have the invitation, go to Christ. Go to Jesus Christ, because he alone is the Savior Of man. Friends, maybe you're here this morning and just like this eunuch, you have some questions about the word or maybe you have some questions about Jesus Christ and I want to encourage you not to be afraid to ask. Ask and God will send you his Philip who will guide you and he will give you answers and we have many of these Philips here among us We've looked at a divine initiative, how God orchestrates everything to reach the lost soul. And he does this with a divine word that is centered on Jesus. And now finally, I want us to look at a divine ordinance, beginning with verse 36. I mean, interestingly enough, nothing is said of this eunuch's conversion here. Evidently, as Peter was preaching Jesus, God sovereignly imparted new life to this man. And and it happens instantly, right? Because salvation is a work of grace. It is apart from human merit, and it is apart from our efforts. God opens your eyes so that you can see the glories of Christ, and so that you can believe in him as your Savior. And that's exactly what happened. He believed. And as they're going along, this eunuch, he sees Body of water and 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 he explains, hey, what's going on? Here's water. How, how, how should I get baptized? What prevents me from being baptized? How did he know about baptism? Maybe he had prior knowledge of baptism, or perhaps Philip told him about baptism. After conversion, you must be baptized. Why? Well, that's what the apostles probably taught Philip, right in the first church and. How did apostles get it? Well, apostles were were taught by Jesus Christ in the Great Commission. Go make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them. Baptism, friends, isn't some man made ordinance, right? It's a divine ordinance. I want you to note here in verse 37 37 here. um, Most of our Bibles, at least those of you who have NASBs, you have verse 37. Those of you who have ESV, as I was reading through the text, you probably were like, wait a minute. What's going on with verse 37? It's not in my Bible. Um, True, it's not in your Bibles. There wasn't a misprint. Uh, NASB, if you look at verse 37, it actually has brackets on both ends here. Notice them. This verse here is not in the earliest and the best manuscripts, verse 37. And in fact, Greek scholars who study through the text and analyze everything, they, they uh, say that even the style of writing, Greek writing in this verse, verse 37, doesn't match the rest of Luke's writing, as if it was added much later by a scribe. And apparently, the explanation might go like this, that some scribe, while copying the manuscript, he he really had the trouble that some of us have, right, with the fact that Luke makes no reference to this eunuch's beliefs and his confession of faith. And so he's like, well, this is what would have happened. And so he inserted this, this verse. We don't have any details of his conversion. We don't have any details of him repenting or of him believing. We assume that that has occurred because he wants to get baptized and baptism as we've observed and as we heard from Mike is a public confession of what God has done in a person's heart through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a outward act, right, of an inward reality. Something happened to you You believed, you professed Christ to be your Lord. Now you want to get out in front of people, in front of the church, and you want to profess and confess that Jesus is your Lord. It's an act of obedience. I want you to also notice something else here in the case of Philip. Earlier on in chapter 13, or um, in verse 13 of chapter 8, Philip baptizes Simon, who appeared to have believed, but later on he's actually cursed by Peter and John, for his hypocrisy. So he comes out and he says, I believe that Jesus is Lord. And Philip is like, well, let's dunk you in the water. They they baptized him. And then later on, he sees everything that's going on and he's a hypocrite who just wants the power of the spirit for which he was condemned. And it's interesting the reaction of Philip, right? How did Philip respond to this hypocrisy? Specifically in terms of baptizing people moving forward did did um did he wait to see great fruit of repentance was philip thinking you know what man he's asking me about baptism but i just baptized this other guy and he turned out to be a fake you know what eunuch why don't you go down to ethiopia and then you'll come up a couple of years we'll verify that you're a true believer and then we will baptize you properly in the congregation of 10,000 people. Is that what he did? No, he, he didn't. He didn't wait right, for some kind of evidence for the work of regeneration. He, he didn't add extra biblical requirements. No, if there's profession of Christ and an understanding of the gospel, then he says you need to be baptized. In fact, you may be the first Christian, right, to go down to Africa and the Lord will use you to proclaim the gospel and to start a church down there. So the chariot is stopped, they get out, and we read that they got down into the water and that they came up out of the water, which probably indicates submission, submersion, right? They were submerged underwater, Um and what did that indicate? As, as Mike mentioned earlier, it signifies this complete identification with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. I want you to notice at the end, of verse 39, when they came up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on rejoicing. It's the first time that this joy is, is mentioned and that's attributed to this eunuch. His response is joy. God found him and gave him what he most needed and that is Jesus Christ, full of joy because he's no longer cast out, rejoicing because he's a foreigner and he is accepted and he's forgiven. That beloved is the declaration of this divine ordinance as we saw today. That I am no longer my own, I belong to Jesus Christ. Friends, as we wrap up, I want to remind you again and again that God is revealed to us in His Word as a sovereign God who leads His people to be in the right places at the right time to accomplish His purposes. He initiates. His work in the hearts of men. And he brings them to life through his divine word that is centered on Jesus Christ. This is how God works. And without a doubt, God has brought you here this moment. Maybe you came here in order to observe your friend or your relative be baptized. Maybe you're not sure why you're here. Just let's go to Grace Hill in the morning just happened to stumble into this building. Well, God maybe is making it clear to you now why you're here. Has he brought someone to your mind that you need to tell Jesus about? Maybe there's someone you're thinking and right now, this very moment, like Philip, perhaps God is reminding you that you need to tell them about Jesus Christ. Maybe if you're a Christian here who profess Christ but you haven't been baptized, maybe you need to be baptized, and you're reminded that I need to obey the Lord by doing this. Or maybe you're you're sitting and you're like, I'm just here to support my friend, and I don't really care about none of this ordinances and 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 all of this, you know, religious rituals. Uh, maybe today, maybe right now, the Lord is reminding you that Jesus Christ is also sufficient for you. And that you need to confess him as Lord and so that you too can be forgiven and accepted into his family and and maybe rejoice for the very first time. I don't know where you're at, the Lord knows, but we all know this, that God is determined to save sinners and he's after his people by using ordinary people who focus on Jesus Christ. Church, let us do that. Let us preach Christ, and we'll leave the results up to the Lord. And results are great, as we've seen this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I pray that you would build our faith, that we would be sensitive to your leading, to your moving. You initiated our salvation and you also brought us at times to go and to speak the truth to others. I pray may we we be sensitive to this. I pray for someone who may be here in a group this size. I'm sure there are people who are not saved and I pray that, Lord, you would reach down and that you would confront them where they're at and remind them, Lord, that you are full of love, kindness, that Jesus Christ paid for their sins and they can be forgiven they can find this elusive joy that is not found in anything or anyone else but jesus christ help us to heed this message and rejoice with these two whom you saved and brought into the church we thank you in jesus name amen